We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And the new power party's Xiaoxin Shang. Hello, everyone. Tonight we'll be discussing Han Guoyu claiming the government is tracking his car and also saying that he plans to restart the fourth nuclear power plant if elected president in January. We'll also be discussing China's claims that Taiwan is orchestrating the Hong Kong protests, news that the Formosa One wind farm is set to begin commercial operations, the latest on government plans to make English a second official language and a ban on smoking outside convenience stores and coffee shops. But we'll begin with President Tsai Ing-wen on Wednesday saying that the possible sale to Taiwan by the United States of advanced F-16 fighter aircraft to Taiwan will mark a new beginning of the nation's air force. The statement came after the US Defense Security Cooperation Agency announced that it had officially notified Congress of the deal, which is expected to take effect within one month. And writing on her official line account, Tsai said the arms sale means that Taiwan's brand new air force is about to take off for na for na, and the military will continue to expand its fighter wings and boost its air defense capability. Premier Su Jung-chung says the cabinet will now draft a special defence budget to cover the 8 billion US dollar cost of the 66 F-16 package, although that bill will first have to clear the legislature. But apparently both the DPP and the KMT say they'll back the special defence budget. So there you got the DPP shout and the KMT backing the special defence budget. The NPP, will you be backing the special defence budget? Um, I think there will be no question on that. I mean, this arms sale is very uh, encouraging. Uh, three points. So number one, I mean, we see a regularization of uh, the arms sales from U.S. to Taiwan recently because um, so the basic case scenario is like when whenever Taiwan is proposing like to have a, a bunch of weapons, and then the U.S. you know Department of Defense you know evaluates it and whether they approve or disapprove it, and then later uh, the, the arms sale happens or not happen. But that, that's the best case scenario. But be, but before because of the, the pressure from China, it's always you know all deals jammed together and then in a one package and then to go through or not go through so if if it if this is happening regularly, whenever Taiwan sees a uh, military needs arise, they should propose a, a arms sales from to, to the U.S. And if this is regularly happening, this is going to be a very good sign. And number two, um, this F-16 is not a regular F-16AB that we, we got in 1992. It's, it's F-16V. It's a it's very beefed-up version of the, uh, the, the the fighter jets. So, and, and of, of course, and also the... the Taiwan is part of the research uh, of the F-16B. So this is very, very encouraging that the, the U.S. is not selling um, outdated uh, weapons. Taiwan, like many content form articles, is alleging and spreading the disinformation. So this is very, very, very advanced um, group of fighter jets that Taiwan is getting. And number three, I mean, some people are claiming that uh, in these arms sales, the U.S. is making a lot of money off Taiwan. But if you look at this group of uh, F-16V sales and compare with other countries, for example, like Bulgaria, that's got the, the similar um, type of aircrafts recently, you see that uh, Taiwan is not you know, getting a bad deal. It's not, not, not expensive, more expensive at all. So this is very encouraging news that uh, regularization of U.S. arms sales to Taiwan is very going to... Um, uh, beef out our, our uh, military defense capability. 
And yeah, to that extent, I was actually a little scratching my head this time that no less than Hungary said that he was supportive of the arms sale this time when KMT candidates have previously claimed that the U.S. is selling uh, outdated military equipment to Taiwan or that uh, this is not necessary or that this is just inflaming of China. And so that's quite interesting, actually. Particularly, it was Terry Goh who said that. Um, I think this time it's quite interesting, the timing, though, because of the fact that there is uh, U.S.-China trade negotiations that go on and on and on. The trade war has reached this uh, peak, and then we're also seeing these current events in Hong Kong. And it's a question how, for example, American President Donald Trump will react. Um, and now, suddenly, in the last few days, he's saying that he's the chosen one to fight China, whatever that means exactly. Um, but this kind of is more in line with supportive actions increasing from the U.S. government and the uh, Congress and so forth as a bipartisan effort as separate from the president and his flip-flops. And so I think this fits that pattern of behavior. And, and um, it will, China will probably react predictably and condemn this. But that's how it is. What about, of course, much has been said about Donald Trump probably using Taiwan as a sort of a, a, a way to deal with China. But do you think there's a chance that Donald Trump, being Donald Trump, and says very little that people can believe, could turn around and say, no, there is no F-16 deal now? Um, <laughs> I don't think it's impossible. This was a sudden tweet. But right. then that raises the question, then, who has authority? Um, will he actually block it, or is it just saying this and just saying this on the internet? And, and I think China would also actually have some ambiguity. Is, is this actually a sign that Donald Trump would t- try to take some action to prevent this from happening? Yeah, by looking at Donald Trump's uh, statement, press, uh, the press statements, you see that he likes the deal, and that he's repeating that it's a lot of money and a lot of jobs. So I, I think he's feeling pretty good about this deal and of course he said Taiwan will use them rationally that's right um, I think it's a re- <laughs> responsibility <laughs> uh, I'm pretty yeah, sure I don't know right, telling, telling arms country that doesn't use arms rationally is uh, <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> but I mean Brian do you think this could pave the way for more obviously we've had the tanks we had a bunch of missiles and some tanks recently and now we've got the F-16 deal I mean obviously in Taiwan is building its own submarines could, so in the future near future could we see more US assistance in Taiwan's submarine program that's a question. I think that would actually rely on regional partners, particularly given um, the needs of building a submarine. The U.S. uses nuclear submarines, and that would be probably not out of the question, out of the question for Taiwan. And so then that raises you know a lot of these long-term issues regarding indigenous um, the arms industry. Uh, it is it is interesting though because Taiwan just does have an aging fighter fleet, and so this is one of these issues that people talk about for years and years and years. Um, Taiwan's around four, Taiwan has around four hundred fighter planes to China's sixteen hundred, so it's still not exactly. I mean, it's still very a big disparity but there's been a need to replace these these uh, planes that have been serviced for decades and so this is one of these things that probably actually could have occurred sooner but didn't I think in terms of just keeping the uh, fleet up to date and of course Xiao these aeroplanes aren't going to appear overnight of course they're no. looking I believe 2026 are the earliest for delivery Right. I mean, this is very, very uh, advanced. Just like I said, I mean, Taiwan's part of a team that's research on this F-16V. So whenever you, uh, even the U.S. is selling this uh, type of aircraft to other countries, uh, Taiwan's research team might even get a cut. So, I mean, this is it takes a long time to not even um, deliver. But also, uh, Taiwan's looking to uh, convert their uh, original F-16AB to, to the V version. And that's going to take a long time, too. So, But we will see this uh, keep progressing and then we're going to tour a very strong air defense future. But, I mean, Brian, do you think China would have developed something else by then that could defeat this F-16V? Um, yeah, I mean, China does have a larger fighter plane fleet regardless, and so it is just a question, is this sufficient uh, fighter planes for Taiwan that are modern enough to make it 
possibly beyond uh, rational concerns to actually attack Taiwan and and lose that many uh, fighter planes and so so forth. And there's also the, all these questions about which is actually the most important part of Taiwan's uh, national defense. Is it the navy? Is it uh, air support? Is it um, you know setting up mines and when the troops are coming and the beach and that kind of thing? And so there's actually all these discussions. That actually, is this actually the thing that Taiwan needs most currently? Is actually airplanes what is needed most? But I think that with a lot of Taiwan's military hardware, it is aging, and so this is this is something that does have to be done. Right, maybe everyone can use their fighter jets rationally and not use them. There's an idea, eh? <laughs> well, I think that's a good idea. <laughs> anyway, moving on, and in what has become our near-weekly Hang You news segment, the KMT's 2020 presidential candidate opened two big cans of worms this week. On Tuesday, he claimed the government had installed a tracking device in his car, angering the presidential office, which demanded evidence of the claim. And on Wednesday, Han raised the scorn of both President Tsai Ing-wen and KMT. New Taipei Mayor Ho Yoi, after telling the American Chamber of Commerce in Taipei that if he's elected president in January's election, he'll restart operations at the now mothballed fourth nuclear power plant, but only if it's safe to do so and he has public support for such a move. Now, neither Han nor his office have presented any evidence that the government is trying to track his movements by putting a bug in his car, while President Tsai Ing-wen said that Han Guoyu should seek to first address the problem of how to deal with waste fuel before proposing to activate the fourth nuclear power plant and she also said he should have done his homework before proposing his plan to restart it in the first place. While the new Taipei mayor is describing commercial operations of the fourth nuclear power plant as a fake issue, as he says many of the fuel rods have already been removed and sent back to the United States. Now, the new Taipei mayor's comments, of course, come after he refused to act as a campaign captain for Han's 2020 presidential run. So, Brian, it appears that Han has irked more people than normal this week, including those in his own party. That's right, and it is one of those unusual moves that he is so committed to nuclear energy, despite the fact that this will inevitably provoke blowback. And that is actually one of these big questions I always have about KMT politicians, why they are so committed to this issue of reactor number four and to promoting nuclear energy, despite the fact that this can actually be controversial with the uh, with, with local residents and the nation at large. And so Han has now taken this pro-nuclear stance, uh, and surprisingly, just this accentuates some of the splits that currently exist in the KMT. Hoyoi didn't show up to his uh, confirmation ceremony for being the uh, presidential nominee of the KMT, which is an unusual development. And then there's in Taichung also refused to be the campaign manager. Um, then that being said, there's a, a hundred strong policy advisory body formed to, to back Han as a show of faith. And uh, it, it just it just shows that there are these internal splits in the KMT and that there might actually be uh, differences between local KMT politicians who have to represent the interests of their uh, constituencies and they might actually break away from the central party this time and, and so forth. I mean, the KMT is facing these internal problems of discipline, particularly regarding some of Han's antics uh, and uh, leading to criticism, particularly around alcoholism or accusations of alcoholism. Um, and so, yeah. And Xiao, of course, one of the advisors on Han's panel is the head of the, what was it called, the Nuclear Mythbusters group that instigated the <laughs> pro-nuclear referendum. That's right. I mean, his uh, advisory, energy advisory group are pretty much the same group that advises uh, President Ma Ying-jeou. Um, and President Ma Ying-jeou is known to be uh, the, the very strong champion to restart the nuclear reactors, um, understandably, because... Um, there's a lot of backing from the uh, the industry of uh, KMT in, in traditional campaigns. So this is all a very 
very old stuff、uh, because this KMT and the nuclear. I mean, they they just keep wanting to restart the the, the nuclear power.、Um, so based on that, I mean, I think the the the, the, the even the DPP should actually go towards a more vision of telling people that the Taiwan is, does not have an issue with lack of electricity. So if that that message is actually propagated, it's it, it, pretty useful to、uh, to to actually neutralize the the, the KMT's claim that we need to restart the nuclear powers. And a tracking device on his car, Brian. <laughs> I was quite amused、it's, that he was unable to produce that. That was amazing. Yeah, there's a tracking device on my car. It's 2019. Has he not heard of a pinging a mobile phone? That's right. That's right. And he also claimed that he had it removed by his personal mechanic, and he didn't produce the actual device. And、uh, and and when Tai told him, just then you should file a legal case about this, he declined to do so. And so, where is this tracking device? Well, it's not the first time that、uh, Hangul is accusing President Tsai Ing-wen using the state machine to.、Uh, To either monitor him or his campaign. I mean, City Councilor Zhong Xiaoping has said that、uh, the, the National Security Council has、uh, used, you know, the 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 rally、uh, gathering, you know, people's、uh, mobile phones data to calculate how many people are going to Hangul's rallies. So, I mean, I don't think that's、uh, that's the actual case, but、uh, it, it's just a common theme that they are accusing presidents have using the,、uh, you know. National resources to monitor them. I mean, Brian, do you think he's doing this to rally his base? Because I mean, he's looking obviously pr-、so. pretty daft to the general public that on his base when he comes out and makes lofty allegations and then can't substantiate them. I think so. I think he is playing to his base because there is a sense of persecution among、um, deep blue. KMT members,、uh, there's a sense, this belief that there's a green terror ongoing, which is somehow worse than the white terror, <laughs> and then all these accusations that the Thai government is is undemocratic,、uh, for for example, taking action on the TMT's party assets, or pursuing transitional justice, or just generally being the not their candidate in office,、uh, and then the, then Han will make these these very unsubstantiated allegations and. People can't call him out for it. The news will report on it because of the fact that so much news coverage is devoted to him, uncritical,、uh, uncritical coverage of him on want want own channels and so forth. And so then he can get away with it, and he can continue making these these outlandish statements and be unable to back it up. And for example, the allegations that Han was one of the reasons that he got into office out of nowhere was because of uh, disinformation, uh, aid of China and so forth on the internet. Then he will use these kind of accusations as just claiming that this oh this the Thai administration is making these false allegations. Against me and trying to defame me using this false fake news、um, criticism. No one's bugging your car, though, Shauna.、Um, I don't know yet. I don't know about that. Have a check. Yes. Anyway, in something more serious, President Tsai Ing-wen this week told delegates at the 2019 Asia Pacific Security Dialogue in Taipei that recent developments in Hong Kong show that democracy and authoritarianism cannot exist side by side, and that, along with Beijing's refusal to renounce the use of force against Taiwan, is why her administration rejects China's one country, two systems formula. As a solution to the cross-strait crisis or issue, whatever you want to call it. Now, those comments came a day after Tsai said, while her administration is concerned about the ongoing pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong, it will not intervene. Now, both those comments are seen as being a rebuttal against claims by Beijing and also pro-China politicians in Hong Kong, who are accusing Taiwan of meddling in the territory's affairs by, in fact, orchestrating the protests and also of indulging criminals by offering asylum to people facing prosecution for their involvement in the. 
said anti-government protests in the former British territory. So, Xiao, is President Tsai Ing-wen and her administration orchestrating the protests in Hong Kong? <laughs> well, I mean, China has now the accused of uh, President Tsai Ing-wen of of helping uh, to organize the protest, they also accuse uh, the CIA or, or, or you know the U.S. government of doing the same. So it's just a common tactic of uh, the the CCP that um, whenever there's uh, internal unrest, they they blame um, anybody but themselves. So I mean. The, the fact is pretty clear. I mean, the, the Hong Kong protests is one nothing more than you know. There's a five, you know, uh, five claims that they, they want the, the Hong Kong government to reach. The, 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 the chief of which is just to withdraw the, uh, the 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 extradition bills. So I mean, to to pin this on President Tsai Ing-wen's administration is pretty absurd. And then. On the asylum issue, I mean, I'm personally, I'm strongly in favor of uh, offering asylum to, you know, Hong Kong protesters, some of which are, are being targeted by Hong Kong's police or even the, the Chinese military as, uh, as inciting violence. I mean, because you see this on the streets of Hong Kong right now, there's an unprecedented level of violence, not only against the uh, the protesters, uh, but the innocent child and, 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 and women. You see a lot of, um, you know, women protesters being harassed by police. We see uh, children on the street uh, being pushed around. I mean, so this is not um, uh, the the this is not the Hong Kong we used to see. And as a as a democratic government, I think Taiwanese government has a responsibility on humanitarian base to offer asylums to whoever that that's prosecuted over there, and then offer them a, a safe place to at least state and then plan their their next steps. But Brian, obviously, if the government starts offering. The government is. How would you put this? The government could look pretty stupid if it starts offering asylum to people that were involved in protests anywhere in the world. I mean, if I went out back to England and threw a brick through a window and got into trouble and then claimed asylum, that would be questioned, surely. I think actually the KMT would actually target that if uh, if that happens. I think that what's quite interesting is that you have these accusations that Taiwan is behind the protests, but actually the indirect cause is uh, a murder incident that took place in Taiwan, and that's why this extradition bill was proposed. And so there, there's actually some indirect cause from Taiwan, but on then on the other hand, because of the fact that Taiwan does not have an extradition bill with Hong Kong, this is why Hong Kong protesters are coming to Taiwan, and they became they started coming almost immediately after these dramatic incidents, such as attempting to occupy the legislative of council on July 1st, which was an act that Hong Kong protests compared to the Sunfire Movement uh, very quickly, like within just a few hours. Um, and then immediately after that, you, st- you started hearing rumors that Hong Kong protesters had come to Taiwan to flee, and eventually emerged that upward of 30 protesters have come here and probably much more. Um, but I think actually this will create issues to the Thai administration no matter what happens, because the Thai administration has de-escalated rhetoric saying that it will uh, provide some kind of asylum process to protesters. It claims now the existing means are enough and that you can use uh, existing ways to get here, whether you become a student, uh, uh, you start a business and uh, get a job here and things like that. But a lot of these younger protesters don't actually have the resources to do that. And so they will actually just probably just come here on tourist visas and stay here and overstay their visas, uh, which actually already happened in the case of a localist uh, activist that came here in 2017 and just has disappeared since then. And so I think actually just they have not come forward now, but just after after the, some time has passed, there will become this issue of these these people are here, came here on tourist visas, oversay their visas, and what will the government do? Will it actually deport them or not? Well, of course, that's the point. I mean, if obviously 
if Hong Kong revises this extradition bill somehow, just to make it an extradition bill that covers Taiwan and other areas, yeah, mm. not necessarily sending people to Beijing to face trial, then of course Taiwan's in a bit of the the poop, so to speak, because it's got these Hong Kong people and an extradition bill to Hong Kong, mm. yeah, so where they're yeah. Te- where they're technically wanted for rioting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I think it's it's a question. I think that the Thai administration needs to make some kind of clear statement, otherwise this will just become some kind of uh, this will become eventually a, a big political news story. It will become a it will actually explode out into the open. Yeah, I, I think one of the more more well known cases uh, of of Hong Kong overstaying the Taiwanese visas is uh, Lin Rongji, the, the, the bookstore owner of uh, Tong Wan bookstore, who was uh, abducted in, in Hong Kong and sent to uh, China for for torture and, and, and interrogations. Um, so he, when at the very beginning of this extradition bill legislative process, he uh, pretty much fled to Taiwan and overstay his visa and keep overstaying his visas. But Taiwanese government has been showing a very friendly you know, attitude toward him and then letting keep you know um, staying in Taiwan so I, I think the, the the overarching issue is whether Taiwan can formally you know pass a uh, asylum bill that allows this uh, this uh, people to stay in Taiwan and then have a, have a safe heaven against a, you know oppressive regime. So I think I'm pretty strong in favor of that. Mm, yeah, and I think the numbers are large. Tw- uh, immigration from Hong Kong is up by 28 percent already. That's, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's good for our economy. I mean, the Hong Kong people wants to you know mm. immigrate to Taiwan to bring their talents and, and special skills. Mm. Isn't there a concern that maybe that they're using Taiwan as a stepping stone? So they'll come to Taiwan for a limited period of time before going to Australia, New Zealand. Britain, America, Canada. It's possible. And also, I think it depends on what the uh, eventual response from the international community is to Hong Kongers seeking asylum elsewhere. This has not really been flagged as much as an issue in other places. Um, but I think it's actually quite interesting that a lot of Hong Kongers will come to Taiwan because of a sense of cultural affinity, A, but also B, precisely that, because it doesn't. It is, it is the place that doesn't have this extradition agreement with China. And so there's that, there's that paradox. I mean, if you go to the U.S., you actually do have the possibility of, of being extradited. And then you could in, become a kind of odd pawn in, say, the U.S.-China trade war um and, yeah yeah and i don't believe the taiwanese government will extradite them to hong kong based on rioting charges i mean i for one can see that happening technically they broke the law though, didn't they uh they did but um but but that's for example the sunflower movements a lot of students are, are being charged with with you know unrest or inciting violence but they were all acquitted you know several years after the event so based on that we can claim that this rioting charge probably cannot stand and we won't extradite them I think that's right I think that's absolutely right I think that the Hong Kong government is is at this point no different from a police state and I think there's a a definite need for providing shelter for these these people that will face political persecution people that are young and and will be facing up to 10 years in jail or made into political scapegoats and there's the uh, 28 year old British consulate worker who was Detained while crossing into back to Hong Kong from a one-day business trip in Shenzhen, and this is precisely what people fear—that there would be this uh, treatment of Hong Kong national, uh, Hong Kong Hong Kongers, as though they were just simply Chinese nationals. And I think this this it is it is a question for these people now in Hong Kong: will they actually just be extraditionally sent to China with the passage of the extradition bill or not? I think that's possible. It's already it already took place in the case of the uh, Causeway Bay booksellers. Because has there been any reports about Hong Kongers walking into embassies in Hong Kong claiming asylum? So far not, as far as I'm aware. However, I think that a lot of the Hong Kongers that have come to Taiwan are just trying to keep underground currently. That is my sense. Right. Now we have to take a short break, but we'll be right back after these rather important commercials. 
Welcome back to Taiwan This Week. Now, Economics Minister Sheng Rongjin on Tuesday announced that the Formosa One offshore wind farm located in waters some six kilometres off the coast of Miaoli County will be brought online by the end of this year, making it Taiwan's first commercially operational such facility. And I spoke with Hal Falls, the commercial manager of Miaoli Onshore Wind Farm, to get a better understanding of what the Formosa One wind farm is becoming operational means for Taiwan and the government's green energy policy. Good evening, Hal. Good evening, Gavin. So the Formosa One wind farm will begin commercial operations by year's end. Well, that according to the economics ministry. But I mean, what does this mean for Taiwan's offshore wind farm development? Obviously, the first turbines were put into this farm, which is off the coast of Miao Li, like three years ago, and it's only just beginning commercial operations. They put two of them in about uh, three years ago. And these two that have been there have been on and off successful. I know that these two were triple the original investment that they thought. But now it's kind of exciting. I was actually out there yesterday because their wind farm is right offshore from where my Tunan wind farm is. So I was out there looking them over, and, and it appears that right now they have maybe 19 or 20. It's kind of hard to count because they, they kind of move out to sea. But 19 or 20 foundations are already installed, and there's 12, as of yesterday, there was 12 towers and blades put in. So they're making a lot of progress, and it's good to see that, that they're actually moving forward. Not just them, but I, I think it's a good omen for everybody going forward in the future. Okay. What about the time frame? Do you think it's, it's slow, or is it just a normal time frame for creating the first wind farm offshore? Well, I mean, they're, they're years behind, obviously. Um, but I think the progress that they're making right now is, is not bad. I mean, they've got 19 put in. They've, they only started doing this maybe four or five months ago that they started installing the new foundations, and now they're getting the towers up. So it's progress. They've got the install boat out there, this, this big monster thing that actually sets up on legs. And then they've got the, the support ships that are that are going out after they've got the towers up. So they, they seem to have the infrastructure now in place for at least building one at a time. I'm not sure if they've got any more, but it's a good omen. Yeah, sure. Right, of course, and the government has said that these 20 wind turbines, they had two in initially, they were apparently generating four megawatts of power, and the, twin, each. Each, each. Yeah, yeah. and the 20 new wind turbines that you were saying you saw the bases of, apparently they'll be capable of generating six megawatts of power each, and I, I believe I read that that's enough power to generate 128 megawatts, which officials say is enough to power electricity to some 128,000 households a year. Yeah, but keep in mind, Gavin, when you say four megawatts or six megawatts, that's only when you have maximum speed. And the maximum speed for those things, well, I mean, the, the maximum speed that you need to generate six megawatts or four megawatts would be about 13 meters per second. And I would say typically these guys are going to average about over the course of the year, maybe 30 or 35 percent of that. So the, the opportunity to generate 128 megawatts is not that often, and typically only in the winter months. These wind turbines will be set to the national grid? Yes. And do the households that they're going to generate power for have to be in a Pacific area near the wind farm offshore there, or can they be anywhere? Okay. 
first of all, you know, that's just a, a comparison phrase that they use, enough to generate electricity for 50,000 homes or 100,000 homes. That's just a number that they throw out there as a comparison. This will go on to the national grid. So it, it doesn't matter. I mean, you could have an industry up in Keelong or an industry or a small farm down in Kaohsiung, and they will all be supplied from the national grid that this is also supplying to. It's just it's basically just another electric source to the grid, but it's a clean energy source. Right, and of course, the, the government has been has been bragging about Zhanghua County offshore wind farms there, and of course, this is this is in Miaoli County, quite a bit further north. So, right. when when can we expect to see the the much hyped Zhanghua County wind farms coming online? Hopefully, they can make more progress in the next six months. Let's ask me that question six months later, okay? Because I I mean, right now they are making plans. The good thing is, Gavin is that you, we can now see some actual progress. There's 20 there's twenty wind generators that are being built, and they're actually being built, and they're actually going up, and they actually have the infrastructure for building these things. It's a, it's a, it's a good step forward. So now they can probably take the same service boats and everybody else and move it to Zhonghua County. It's, it's a step. It's an important step. So the process is likely to speed up. Once they've done one, they'll know what to do. Another one will come up quicker than this one. Let's say yes. As soon as they get all the permits and everything else and work out everything with the locals and onshore, where they're going to run their cables onshore, where they're going to put their substations onshore, what the locals are going to say in Zhonghua County. Do you think that there'll be much resistance to these offshore wind farms? <sighs> that's, that's a really good question. I, I, you know, as far as noise is concerned, no. But they have to run the cables onshore someplace. And if if this onshore cable has anything to do with, like, what they're trying to do to, to run the undersea cable from Taiwan to Penghu, and they still can't get it installed because the locals don't want it, or there's huge taxes involved, then it could be a problem. I, I, and hopefully, hopefully the people like Orstad and, and Northland Power have been able to work out these local residents and local government problems already. Hopefully they have. That was me in conversation with Hal Falls of Miaoli Onshore Wind Farm. And the National Development Council on Monday announced that a series of activities to encourage members of the public to speak English has seen a big response. Now, the activities are part of efforts by the government to push its plans to make English a second official language by 2030. Now, according to project manager Leo Jung, three types of events have been held since May to get people to use English, and they include short film contests for students, visits by native English speakers to service sector providers, and situational English learning activities. And the ND says while the policy is not aimed at making every Taiwanese a fluent English speaker, it is intended to forge a culture of English learning for not only students but the entire country in order to enhance the island's overall competitiveness. So, Brian, there you go. The NDC's make everyone speak English and make it a second official language is continuing. But, I mean, where do you think this stands, this policy? Obviously, Premier William Lai trying to emulate his Tainan policy. That's right, and so there's been this talk of, of do you try to make English a second official language, which could 
could lead to issues such as having to duplicate all documentation also in English uh, and then add all these things to signs and, and, and so forth. Um, and it's been discussed for a long time, even uh, on the other side of, of the pan-green camp. Han Goyer claims that he wants to promote English and he has been touting, for example, his English name, Daniel Han, which nobody actually seems to realize. Um, but I think that it might actually just be eight not enough, uh, not actually devoting sufficient resources to genuinely make English an official language. I think also B, uh, Taiwan doesn't have a history of colonization by an English-speaking country, so there hasn't been this history requiring English in Taiwan as, as part of administrative duties, and so it is actually very hard to make that switch. And uh, C, I also think there's a lot of very basic things that could be done to to, let's say, standardize English learning in Taiwan and so forth. But it just occurs sometimes at a very ad hoc, uh, informal basis at different English schools with different materials, sometimes which are not always right, um, and sometimes teachers are not adequately prepared. And there's kind of a lack of building a infrastructure for English teaching and learning in Taiwan. And that's actually what's needed, not making videos or having these projects or just sending people to classes and so forth. Yeah, I mean, making English a second official language has been is a very old policy. I mean, I've heard that ever since I was a child. Um, but it, it's very different that to make uh, English a second official language than just to make uh, Taiwanese people, you know, learn better English. It's because uh, as an official language, I mean, that means all government, you know, official workers then needs to be able to speak and read uh, in fluent English and uh, just like Brian said all document official documentations needs to have uh, their counterpart in English so this is a, a very very um, complex process and I would immediately think of a very um, for example a very like a, oh um government workers probably in their 50s and 60s and you want you have to force them to pick up English in order to keep doing their job and then be part of their evaluation and that's going to cause a, a lot of uh, anguish so I'm seeing this is probably not going to happen um, that soon as the government claims but I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see they're moving in the right direction because uh, making English a strong language in Taiwan helps uh, to boost our competitiveness um, especially our economic activities or our startups we need to you know connect better with the international community and if we can you know speak English, English and then our documentations have a dual version in English that's going to help out our, our uh, foreign investors and then also uh, students, exchanges, all that activity is going to be very, very much beneficial to our economy. So I'm, I'm strongly in favor of that. But I mean, Brian, obviously, if the DPP loses the next election, do you think this is one, <laughs> one of these policies that will just go by the wayside? It's possible, unless, let's say, Hungary decides that he doesn't want to continue this policy, apparently. Um, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. I think that a lot of a lot could be done to just clarify that it already exists, though, for example, that a lot of friends, uh, foreigners, expats, will ask me questions about how do I understand this, this visa form that's written in English, but it's just so complicated that I cannot understand it. And there, there are a lot of existing issues. And so I wonder if these issues might actually be accentuated if there is actually Actually, um, every official document has another English version. It actually could potentially be incoherent uh, because of the fact that there are already there's still all these deep-rooted issues with English. Um, I've seen just too many forms that I can't if understand how to fill out, um, or just even based on the Chinese version, I, I can't understand what's going on. Um. <laughs> yeah, there are already many sites that in China you see that signs and the English translation just completely messed up. Uh, you cannot. Not, not only you cannot read it, sometimes it's very, very funny. Um, so I worry that uh, if they do that, they will just do all this, you know, the, the, the Chinese version to Google Translate and have a English version that <laughs> no one can understand. I bet they have in Taijong recently at a building site. 
Mm. where the sign made absolutely no sense. It was like, this is the extension line for an MRT line, and it said something about Ukraine and Japan. That's right. Actually, on the tower in MRT, just right, uh, the airport MRT, right outside the station, on, in the bathroom, it says, I love Paris. I'm just like, why does it say, I love Paris here? Or tower in. <laughs> then, and it, then you turn around, and on the other side, it says, you, you got off the plane in the wrong place. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, before we go today, the Taipei Department of Health issued a reminder saying that smoking on covered walkways outside convenience stores and coffee shop chains in the capital will be banned from september the first now the ban covers all the convenience stores such as the 7-eleven the family mart the circle k and the other ones and it covers all the coffee shops the starbucks the 85 degrees c the louisa coffee the ikiri coffee and all the other coffee shop places that have tables outside now the taipei health commission says that people caught smoking on these covered walkways in front of the 15 chain stores all the branches thereof will be subject to fines of up to 10,000 nt but apparently the rule doesn't apply to open sidewalks or areas outside of the stores that are not covered by an overhang of the building. So, Brian, they're going to ban smoking outside some convenience stores and some coffee shops, but ones where you need an umbrella to smoke outside in the rain is okay. Uh, that's right. And so it's a question, will this be enforced? And I think that probably not. I think the police may have better things to do. And even just, for example, attempts to roll out a lot of these nationwide policies, such as the plastic straw ban, are not enforced. And so then you still have a lot of stores handing out plastic straws and so forth. And I think that just because this is such a common practice in everyday life, it is actually very hard to change. And so I think that uh, probably there would be backlash if actually police were taking action as well, just arresting people en masse for smoking and, and that kind of thing, um, or finding people. And so it is. It pro- I think it will just eventually not get too far yeah i agree with brian i mean this is uh at first i don't understand the rationale behind this pain but um when i walk by a, a store i see the the sign that please don't smoke here because there's a ventilation vent that's drawing air inside the, the, the restaurant so uh, it makes pretty much good sense that um if there's such ventilation systems and if you smoke outside immediately outside the the, the coffee shops uh they might pollute the air inside so i mean i make sense i mean uh, although there will be less and less uh, places where people can smoke i mean but um i think this is overall a good chain Trend change, but you don't think policemen will be chasing people down the streets going, Oi, put that cigarette out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's gonna happen anytime soon. And what about the fine, Brian? 10,000 NT, that's right, and that's a bit, that's a bit steep. It is steep. That's one way to intimidate people into uh, following this policy. But I also think that there would be backlash for uh, doing this. It reminds me of attempts in New York City, for example, to inf- uh, to carry out law uh, enforcement against jaywalking. And because everyone jaywalks, eventually the police just gave up. And I think this might also happen here. Well, they did that here many years ago. They introduced an anti-jay. Some of the roads used to see That's the right. signs. Still see that. Not- yeah. They, they in- when they introduced that law many years ago, there was a big stink about don't jaywalk. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, yeah. you watched it. You you were a bit careful when they introduced the law. So, oh, there's a police right there. <laughs> I won't cross the road here. But, of course, people still jaywalk. That's right. And eventually, with enough time, people forget about the policy. So That's right. I mean, whenever you see there's a big you know, fine, um, there's never enforced because, I mean, people is not going to not gonna arrest you and not going to send you to court and then actually put, put a fine on you. So, yeah, I don't think that's... This is, uh, Sometimes the police themselves decide it's too much trouble. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Probably. Anyway, that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And Xiao Xingxiang. Good night, everyone. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. 
And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.